don't think I can keep a straight face if you say we talk about we talk to kick-ass dudes and gals. Hello, I'm Jesse, CEO and co-founder of Pathway, and I'm here with my co-founder, Kevin Rice. This is another episode of Beyond the Counter, where we interview some of the coolest people in the restaurant, retail, and CPG space. And today, we've got maybe one of the coolest attendees to have ever on our show. Kevin, who is That's that? Right. Today, we've got Sterling Ball, a man that wears many hats. Uh, a lot of people know him for his role in the music industry as the, uh, I think, former CEO of Ernie Ball, Guitar Strings, and Music Man Guitars. Uh, but Sterling also leads one of the top competitive barbecuing teams on the circuit. Uh, he owns Big Papa Smokers, where you can get some of the best smokers and pellet grills uh, in the world. And he even consults on menu and culinary design for some of the world's leading restaurant and food brands. So really excited to have Sterling on. Let's uh, just jump into it. All right, well, welcome everybody to another episode of Beyond the Counter, a uh, podcast where we talk about everything that goes on in the restaurant industry behind the scenes. Uh, to put your favorite food on your plate. Uh, in the last couple of weeks, we've talked to some CMOs, some uh, CIOs of the restaurant industry. Today, we have a very special guest, uh, someone that I've been fortunate to call a friend for nearly 10 years now and a, a former client. Uh, Sterling, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, welcome. I love being here. I like talking to you young guys. <laughs> It's such an exciting time because there's so many, there's so much going on. I mean, it's changing every quick. I mean, loyalty is, is great, but I think that you can't count on loyalty for your brand. You have to keep investing in your brand. And I, I discussed this. Um, it's a concept of brand equity and whether you're building it or whether you're consuming it. Yep. The problem is you can be going along fine, but you're you're actually consuming the brand equity. Uh, nobody ever knows what the straw that broke the camel's back looks like, and nobody knows what the last bite of brand equity tasted like. All they know is everything was over all of a sudden. Yep. So I think there's certain premises, whether you're in a pandemic or not, you've always got to be wondering if you're if you're building your brand, if you're building equity in the brand, um, and if the things you're doing to survive are actually enabling you to have the possibility of survival. Right. Yeah, loyalty is an interesting and somewhat loaded term in the restaurant industry, right? It's often confused with rewards, like spend-based rewards discount programs versus, you know, real customer loyalty. Um, what we do know is loyalty is, is often how somebody perceives your brand and how they associate it with their own kind of personal persona that they're trying to create. Really good example of that was back when Mac did the I'm a Mac campaign. And you remember like Justin Long was on TV and he was the young, cool, hip guy. And then they have the kind of nerdy PC guy. Like, nobody wanted to be associated with the PC guy. So you, you had this you know, brand campaign that created and instilled a tremendous amount of loyalty among, you know, Apple customers. And there was no discounts, right? Apple doesn't discount. They do the opposite of discounts. <laughs> well, Tesla. Yeah. I mean, this man spent, this man hasn't spent a dollar in any kind of traceable traditional marketing. Yeah. 
I mean, and, and by the way, here's, here's a company, here's a guy who's been buried by the auto parts lobby, the, the auto dealer lobby, the finance lobby, um, the oil companies, and, every, and now he's the most valuable company, car company in the world. Yeah. Half a million vehicles. Toyota's made 19 million. Something's wrong with that valuation, though. I mean, it's with this pendulum keeps going too far. I mean, and I'm, I'm a car collector, and all I drive is my Model 3. I think yeah. I love how he beat all – he went against every – he had more, more obstacles than anybody. And I think, you know, he replaced the dealer network. He did a lot of great things. But um, yeah, yeah, so that, that's also an interesting parallel, right? He, Tesla essentially disintermediated the dealership network, the traditional model, you know, whereas in the restaurant industry and a lot of industries, you're having intermediation happen. Amazon becoming an intermediary, all the third-party delivery networks intermediating, you know, that obstructs the relationship. And Tesla is a different industry, you know, where he just basically went straight to the consumer. Yeah, I get my messages on my phone. Yeah, I hear from them. I think, I think it's a brilliant. Uh, I think he had a, 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 you know, this didn't just happen. This guy understood that he's thinking in the future. And one of the things I'd say about leadership, <laughs> maybe I shouldn't be talking about leadership, but actually I do have a, a, a unique way. But I mean, if you're a CEO and you're working on a problem today, and you find yourself working on today's problems, you're a pretty poor CEO. You really got to be thinking, you know. You got to be working, you know, in March right now. I mean, I'm writing a plan for um, for Tyson right now about what what our activations will look like next year. And I have to say, I actually think that I got to write a plan where there's no activations next year. Yeah, we got to figure out how to do it. And this is a forty billion dollar company. And, and so I'm, you're working with you're working with Tyson Foods now. You're working with Tabascos. You do a little bit of work with BJ's. Let, let's take a step back. I, I'd love for you to just kind of like you know share a little bit about your history and now you know consulting with some of these incredible food food brands. I've always cooked. Cooking is when you want you want to please people when you cook. It's a creative outlet. I bought a smoker for my son Scotty, and I bought two, one for me and one for him. And I realized with these smokers that I could. Um, that there was no indirect fire, so you couldn't burn the food. Now, the worst thing I that would happen to me is I'd be invited over to somebody's house and they'd hand me the tones. And I'd have to cook on this horrible gas grill where one quarter's Three Mile Island and the other one's Death Valley, you know, and they got frozen chicken back. Yeah. Sterling's the good cook. Well, my second worst fear was that they wouldn't hand me the tongs. <laughs> So I had these, this smoking system, and actually it was a Traeger pellet grill when they first came out. And uh, the Skull Candy people have bought that since and done a tremendous marketing job. But I said, I can teach men how to cook. I would ask all the wives, how good is your husband cooking? Are you going to tell them what I said? <laughs> <laughs> but it's a macho thing. So I figured that I could teach men how to cook. And so I started buying these barbecues, started doing these videos, and, and um, the people that were working for Ernie Ball that were bringing the barbecues over came to me one day and said, um, hey, we're going to start a competition team. So that's the absolute dumbest idea I've ever heard. This is stupid. There's no reason to do that. It's subjective, all that. And uh, they went out and came in second place ribs their first time. I started coaching them. And then one by one, they quit. I took the head seat and I've cooked 239 contests. And uh, 
I'm pretty proud that I've got, I think, one of the highest winning percentages in competition barbecue. Um, I've won or come in second 34% of the time. I've, I've pulled into a contest. Uh, I've been the national pork champion, and I won first Californian to win a world championship at the American Royal. You know, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, we've had some good dialogue about just kind of where the most innovation is happening in the restaurant industry. Um, and, and I don't ha necessarily think it's happening at the large chain restaurant level when it comes to menu innovation. Uh, but I would love to hear your thoughts on kind of where you're seeing innovation coming from in the restaurant industry. Where the innovation happening is usually you can identify it because it's what inspires you as a customer. And to me, I thought the food truck guys were great, the first ones, but I knew they couldn't make a living. So that was the real problem. Here they are with this dream, and they never figured out that you, they can only sell food for two hours a day. And they, so from there, they went to strip malls. And I think the strip malls right now, especially in Southern California, I mean, if you guys come down here, I, I'll blow your mind, I promise you, uh, with just crazy good flavors, crazy good execution, but amazing customer service and personalized service, which are things that um, is very much harder for a big operator to be able to deliver. Uh, uh, you know, when the owner or the owner's son or daughter is dealing with you compared to somebody who's working the summer gig, it's hard, but um, they check all those boxes because I don't care now about whether there's a boat over my head or any of that. I want, I want, I want really good service, but I want really good, really good innovative and fresh flavors. And, and I think that's one of the things that immigration uh, has added to America on such a beautiful level is, is arts and music, but food. I mean, yep. the, the hybrids, I hate the word fusion, but it is the fusion. There's a place in Fountain Valley called Box Kitchen. And uh, they do a hybrid between sort of Korean, Korean Vietnam and, and Peru. Hmm. And if you look them up, it's, it, they really have a great review. I think Yelp has been incredibly helpful. And I think that most people love to hate Yelp. I use Yelp. There's certain cities that are Yelp elevated. I'll tell you yeah. here in Orange County where I am right now, the closer to the ocean, the worse the food. <laughs> the reason why I can say that is closer to the ocean, the higher the rent. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Overhead. And the expectation to what you want to buy. In a lot of these um, strip malls, you're eating... You're eating a lot of vegan and vegetarian stuff that you wouldn't normally. You're eating uh, more chicken thighs and maybe even boneless legs as opposed to breasts. And you're not, you're not maybe getting a tenderloin, you're getting a hanger steak or a flat iron or, or something. But I think it's exciting and interest, interesting. But I also think it plays to the younger consumers in that they, I mean, your grand, generally your grandparents didn't eat very spicy food at all. Your parents might have eaten a little bit. Uh, for me, my generation started to eat spicy. But each generation you go down, and 10-year-olds can wolf sriracha like it's, you know, or go to yep. any of that stuff. So, and I think a lot of people in the bigger restaurants are looking at it from their palate instead of the palate of the younger consumer. Yep. And there's no science to say this, but I believe that a younger consumer uh, is more willing to try different things and probably has a wider um wider things things they'll eat 
innovation or like flavor innovation from larger chain restaurant groups is it just because they're trying to you know dumb down the recipe for the most common denominator is it just they're more risk averse well i'm fortunate to work with a with a really bold chain in bj's brew house sure sure um, they i think that they they came from the beach and uh you know the beach is a different mindset you, know, you grow up here a lot of the innovation in california came California, I mean, there was, everybody's kind of a gene crash here. And then you have an attitude at the beach and a lifestyle that's a lot more, uh, it's wider, it's more relaxed. And uh, BJ's came from that. I think that the CEO, Greg Trojan of BJ's, is fearless when it comes to food. I think he's an incredible CEO. He's my friend. Uh, but I think he's, and his team there is, is I'm not just saying this, but they're, the team's spectacular. Uh, the the person I'm fortunate to work with in color development, Scott Rodriguez, he's just a great chef, but he's a great guy that um, that gives you an environment to create and a license, and he doesn't let his ego get in the way of what we're trying to do. And so I think he's one of, in my life, Scott's one of the most impressive guys I've worked with. So it's it sounds really funny, but I don't have to do this. I do this because I love it. Sure. I mean, and I love the people that I work with BJ's, but I also love that if you come up with an idea for a soba noodle with the wasabi guacamole and pokey, you know, three years ago that it's on the menu in two months, you know, whereas it, that was probably not something you'd expect in a BJ's. Um, I want to make sure that everybody knows that BJ's is a collaboration. BJ's is a team. BJ's is a, uh, a place I'm just lucky to be part of. And and this has been a crazy thing where a CEO had the courage to bring this wildcat in. And uh, I think it's been beneficial for, for everybody. So in contrast to BJ's, I mean, we, you mentioned a lot of this kind of like innovation in terms of flavor and menu is coming from strip malls. And those are presumably independent restaurant chains. Or maybe uh, the, ethnic, the, the ethnic food it, 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 that happens to be in strip malls more often than not. Okay. Sure. Well, I mean, strip malls are a great location, right? It's usually convenient, great parking. Like, it makes sense, right? We're, we're seeing data that says like 30% of these independent restaurants are going to be out of business this year, if not already out of business. Um, so we could be in a situation where a lot of those restaurants that we love are just not going to be around in a few years. It's it's tragic. I mean, it it, it is a tragedy. Uh, but the sad part is watching for the first time. I had said to you in another conversation that I'd never seen a really great restaurant with really great service and great food and decent prices go broke. And in this pandemic, yeah, there are victims of that. I thought about that comment I made, and there 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 are victims, and that's really really sad. I mean, the biggest challenge you look at you know workers comp from a restaurant standpoint. You look at the the, the rent in the in the big big malls and downtowns and prime corners, it, it, it doesn't add up. I think one of the things at Ernie Ball I used to do is that we'd get in a situation where we have certain expectations towards employees. And this is back when we actually printed a paycheck. Can you imagine that? There were days where you actually got a paycheck. Yeah. And I would grab the paychecks and I'd have meetings. I'd say, guys, open that paycheck and see what this person Here's their job responsibility. Here's what they take home. And you tell me if you think that's, if, if we're, 
if we're setting an appropriate level of expectation, and we weren't. I mean, and so I look at every check the same way. When I get a check at a restaurant, I say, how can an average family do this twice a month? Mm-hmm. You better be really good. I mean, I, I mean, you've got to innovate. You've got to try harder than ever at being clean, at being, at being uh, welcoming, at, at delivering great service. You have to spend a lot of time with technology. And I'm not just saying that because I'm on with you guys. But, I mean, if you didn't have the things you did, I think that the, there'd be a lot more restaurants that went broke or your industry, not necessarily saying it's all, you know, you didn't cure the common cold, but I think you've, you've enabled a lot of your clients to show growth that they weren't, that they were desperate for, or to pick up some sales that was hopefully, you know, compensating for what they couldn't do inside. Right. Or at least defend against the marketplaces as well. So the, the problem is when you get in this deal where every, where it's just margin, eventually you die. You yep. know, just you have to decide that I mean that's not a battle you should ever really play. And I know big restaurants play with pricing and stuff, but they understand margin. And, and the hardest thing and the thing that's never taught to an entrepreneur, and they always learn the hard part, is that um is that margin is key. I mean, when you go into a project now and somebody gives you a bid, do you always think that that bid's gonna be the number you end up paying and that that timeline is? Yeah. Factor I add to everything, both in time and money. The speaking of margin, I mean the challenging thing we're seeing, you know, in a lot of industries right now, but restaurants in particular, is that they actually were doing fine when they were more or less totally shut down um, because they're keeping their costs in line with their decrease in revenue. But now they're kind of opening up, maybe shutting down again, trying to explore like in slow. They've got, you know, parklets and you know, everybody's trying to nail outdoor dining and you know their margins are just getting destroyed and they're actually being harmed now so almost would have been better you know i know somebody in um in the fitness industry who made a decision just to shut their studios and just said we're not even going to try because we're just going to be draining money we'll just you know basically go and hibernate until this is all over you know an interesting thing that you know i'm watching us print trillions of dollars and and doing all this i i almost think it would be what would happen if they just stopped the clock for 90 days yeah. It wouldn't even take 90. It'd only take like 14 days or something. If you, this is what, this is something I actually want to bounce off of you. I was thinking if the government could actually just give everybody 14 days worth of MREs and just say, you're not allowed to leave. We're just going to wait one whole infection cycle. It could have been killed. It could have been killed in April, but you know, like nobody's, that would be like the most extreme solution, you know, and, and all of the kind of half-assed solutions have ended up just stretching out and making it way worse. Well, you know, hopefully they'll watch this after the pandemic. I mean, hopefully there will be a post-pandemic. But, I mean, the truth on the mask thing, it's such a political issue. I mean, we're selling masks at Ernie Ball, and the hardest marketing conversations we have is, what's our tagline on a mask? Because half the people think it's good and half the people think it's a conspiracy. So yeah. I mean, we can't say do your part because we're going to piss half the people off. So we end up with something that's basically says, hey, if you need a mask, we got a green one. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so you're forced into these different different positions. 
Yeah, I mean, we've been talking a lot with our clients about just kind of if there is a silver lining here, you know, one of the things that restaurants have been trying to do is make this shift towards digital so they can have, you know, more data about their customers, understand their customers better and serve their customers better. And, you know, that's certainly one thing that has happened here is we've had this tremendous shift towards digital, which has been desirable um, by brands for a long time. Uh, The other is we've just seen so much innovation we've seen probably more investment in technology in the past six months than the past, you know, four or five years combined. So, you know, there's, it's tragic, everything that's happened. Um, but, you know, if we try and look for some of the silver linings there, there are certainly some, some positives coming out of it. You know, in dealing with big companies, uh, I dealt with two years ago, I was the primary Tabasco guy. I did, uh, I don't know, 37 videos for them and uh, created a whole bunch of things. And uh, I got, I got, didn't get renewed because I was too old. And they came back with the guys with the barbecue on the knuckles and the beard and the flannel and they're pouring Tabasco on burgers on a grill. And, and you know what? I love Tabasco, love the product. I'm really glad they didn't renew me too, because it wasn't me. Yeah. I, I don't do a good corporate monkey boy. And uh, it, that was a hard one for me. And uh, so now you're watching how these different brands are using ambassadors. And I'm, I'm an ambassador for quite a few companies. And as each day goes by, I want to have fewer companies. And I say no, because the credibility has gone. All these, you know, I have people that every week there's a new product they're touting. They've lost their credibility because they're, so busy beating they're trying to figure out how to make a living out of food yeah yeah if if companies will do it and the the shelf life of an ambassador or an influence there's influencers yeah yeah Yeah. i mean the shelf life of the entire you know industry of influencers is probably coming to a close soon because you know we as marketers know how to mess a good thing up real quick well and the thing is it becomes credibility it becomes you know i we have ambassadors we use in the music business and if they get to a few million, they're usually neurotic because they're, they live and die by their, how many followers they gained or lost the next day. And they have to keep getting more extreme to try and grow their thing. And pretty soon they're not relevant. I mean, that unfortunately there is a life cycle on those people. And um, I think a lot of it has to do with when this is just my view. When I started doing, working for companies, all they cared about were hashtags. Okay. And so they'd get a guy and one guy would be getting paid a hundred grand for one hashtag. And then he'd be getting a box of foil and some donuts for the next hashtag. And it, he didn't realize all hashtags weigh the same. But the other thing is how many times seriously do you guys search hashtag? Never, never. Unless you're yeah. ego surfing. Okay. <laughs> doing one of your clients or something so everything was based on hashtags now in the instagram world it's likes yeah okay well for example i have willow smith that plays one of my guitars in saint vincent and i've probably got five million likes with willow smith now that would be a marketing home run lottery winning right you sure. got five million likes but they're not guitar players and then they're not guitar buyers they're fans of willow smith Right. So the, the metrics and, and, and the things that big companies use, and I'm talking about really big companies, are kind of funny to me because, I mean, you can't just go by likes and you can't just go by hashtags. 
there were some rumors at a point where that Instagram was going to completely get rid of likes altogether. And that single-handedly would like crash the influencer industry. I think they've like partially gotten, they don't show them all the time right away. They show like views instead of likes and stuff like that. So it's, yeah, there's some interesting stuff. Well, it, listen, it's hard in, in the, in the guitar business. I was talking about the back of, of my sets. I'm going to read this. The first one, legendary tone, legendary players, Eric Clapton, Jimmy Page, Slouch, Jeff Beck, Paul McCartney, Keith Richards, Pete Townsend, Buddy Guy, Angus Young, John Petrucci, Robert Plant, John Mayer. And I only got to the third line here. We have <laughs> the most impressive artist roster ever. And um, I can tell you each one of those places, they're like family. They're people we value like ton, but we also know that out of that maybe a hundred names on the back, there's only really three or four that actually sell product. Yeah. And I won't name the names. Well, Slash, I will. Slash sells product, still does. Yeah. Um, there's something about him that sells, that that sells. But uh, some of the big names, they don't sell product, but we're, we, we're tremendously honored to be part of their sound and part of their rig and uh, to be a partner with them. Wow, that was an awesome episode. I, I'm super excited that we were able to get Sterling on on the show. Sterling has been, you know, a close friend and colleague and client of Pathways for a long time. He's been a big champion and supporter. Uh, so really excited we were able to chat with him. You know, Sterling comes with such an interesting perspective, you know, being a leading competitive barbecuer to working with some of the top brands in the industry to help them innovate on their menus. Uh, just such a cool conversation, a treat for us to be able to have him on the show. Absolutely, yeah. And um, interesting to hear the perspective of somebody who's involved in the culinary side. I mean, you've spoken to a lot of folks in IT and marketing and data, you know, surrounding the, the restaurant and retail space, but somebody who's actually involved in creating the food. You know, one of the one of the takeaways from Sterling as a, you know, as a consulting chef is just his belief that, you know, in the authenticity of food and especially with, you know, a younger generation of you know, food buyers, how, you know, for them, things like food trucks, things like, you know, smaller, you know, operations running out of strip malls actually, you know, appeal more to their palate. And I think there's a lesson to be learned for larger chains out there of what can you do to kind of gain or maintain that sense of authenticity um, and differentiation in the space. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it as more and more of the actual experience comes off or you know online and out of the four walls really it's going to come down to the menu as a core way to differentiate and ultimately you know if you're innovating and you're bringing new innovative flavors uh to your menu uh that's going to be critical no i mean uh, kevin i think what what you're getting at is that if you lose the on-site experience the sights the smells the ambiance you know the the music, the lighting, all of that, um, the, you know, the personality of the server, you know, the people at the counter, you know, et cetera. It comes down to the food, which has always been a big component to it. But now when you're looking at off-premise, it's going to come down to the packaging. Um, it's going to come down to, you know, elements of presentation, but presentation in a way that's going to travel well, right? Like the little flourish on a plate doesn't travel very well. Um, but then also how do you, you know, maintain that 
personality and that brand ambassadorship when the the person doing the last mile delivery is a contractor working for a you know delivery service provider and marketplace or maybe in california they're an employee of of that marketplace but either way they're not your employee Thanks for tuning in, everyone. We had a great discussion with Sterling about all things uh, food, innovation, flavors, uh, trends in the industry. If you enjoyed today's discussion, uh, join us in a couple weeks. We've got another great episode coming of Beyond the Counter. Uh, feel free to share the episode with your coworkers or colleagues uh, who might enjoy it as well. Uh, also, as always, this episode and all of our other episodes can be found at our blog uh, at wearehalfway.com, as well as our all major podcast networks. Uh, so thanks again for listening. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed today's show. Hey everyone, thank you again so much for tuning in today. Before we go, we just wanted to quickly remind all our wonderful listeners out there about our partnership with the amazing folks over at No Kid Hungry. The work that the team is doing over there is essential to help combat the huge effect that the shutdown of schools has had on children's ability to rely on daily meals. Every podcast, Hathaway is contributing $500 in our guest's name to No Kid Hungry. And through this effort, we plan to donate $10,000 to assist the team and the incredible work they're doing there by the end of the year. Sterling, thank you so much for being a rad guest to have on today's podcast. Guys, we hope you enjoyed the episode and for more info on Hathaway and Beyond the Counter, please visit us at wearehathaway.com. Thanks again for listening, everyone. Stay safe and we'll catch you on the next Beyond the Counter.